Welcome to The Hyphen in the Nation, the show that explores how our identities shape the way we see the world and experience life. I'm your host, Hannah Yutong. I'm a 1.5 generation Chinese Canadian. Today, we're going to be talking about cultural trauma experienced by Black men in America and cognitive behavior therapy with Dr. Virgil Gregory. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today, I have here with me Dr. Virgil Gregory, who is a clinical social worker in the United States with a history of using cognitive behavior therapy in the treatment of persons with mood, anxiety, psychotic, and substance use disorders. He's currently focused on developing a psychometrically validated skill for measuring cultural trauma in Black men. Welcome, Dr. Gregory. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, we've had many conversations about racism, disseminating um, research, as well as your current work. And I'm so excited to have you on the show with me. So for our listeners who don't know you, can you share a little bit about what is your hyphenation and how does your identity contribute to your work as a professional and a researcher? Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm a Black man in America. My, I consider myself to be a clinical researcher. So often in clinical research, we focus on uh, methodological rigor, like external validity, uh, randomized control trials primarily, and the ability to draw causal inferences from research. Um, so I, as a clinical researcher, I'm definitely interested in internal validity and methodologically rigorous uh, methods. But as a Black man, I'm interested in external validity as well. So I'm interested in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most researched psychotherapy. And it is, uh, you know, has a lot of, uh, you know, research showing its efficacy, but it has far less research showing its external validity. And that is certainly true for, for Black people. So that's the primary way in which my race has influenced my research agenda. Mm-hmm. I think in the research I have read, a lot of times the participants included in the research aren't of people of color or even women, for example, compared to men, or like different age groups aren't um, included. So in research in the United States, do you find that as the case where Black men or people of color are not necessarily included in research studies? Often, definitely, they they are not often uh recruited in uh, randomized controlled trials or the numbers are so low, uh, it's hard to draw any any meaningful conclusions from them. Uh, Or the race in some studies, this has been less true as time has gone on, but in some studies, race is not even mentioned at all, which Hmm. is a major issue. Um, Not only does it cause you know, research problems when when we don't have black people in the research or we don't report the race of the participants. But then when you want to introduce an intervention to a to an African-American person, um, you have less confidence in your ability for to, to tell them that that intervention is going to be effective if if their race was not even included in the sample. So it does raise a lot of research and clinical practice issues. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Can you tell us about cognitive behavior therapy, since that's the focus of your research and your work? What does research say about how it works and why it works? So cognitive behavioral therapy, it has the basic theory that how you think determines how you feel and behave. Mm -hmm. And there is a cognitive model which states that at the very base, you have core beliefs. These are like global, rigid, uh, hard to change beliefs about yourself, uh, the future, the world around you. Um, the next level is intermediate beliefs, where these are like um, attitudes, rules, and assumptions. Um, not as ingrained as core beliefs, but still, still, uh, still difficult to change. And then the most superficial level of cognition is automatic thoughts. Um, these are like innate thoughts that people have on a daily basis, but they don't give them much thoughts. They don't, I'm sorry, they don't give them much attention. Um, so these cognitive structures, core beliefs, intermediate beliefs, and automatic thoughts, when an event occurs, they get filtered through your core beliefs and, and all the other cognitive structures, and they determine, um, you know, how people feel and behave about certain things. Um, so that that's the basic uh, model of cognitive, and, and it, it's changed uh, as time has went on. Um, that's the basic model. Um, based on that model, if someone has problems, uh, could be uh, mental health issues or substance use issues, um, one of the things that you pay attention to and could be targets for change are the, the belief systems, uh, the core beliefs, intermediate beliefs, and automatic thoughts. And then there are other issues also pertaining to African-Americans where no people actually perceive things to be accurate. And when that perception is accurate, you need an environmental change. Um, yeah, something I thought of as you're talking about this is that some people, you know, let's say a black person, I can't speak on being black, but as a person of color, as a woman, I have assumptions and core beliefs about safety, for example, <laughs> and that may not be that may be real to me from my experience, but maybe the policies around me, the environment around me, um, mm -hmm. how things are conducted around me don't support that. If anything, they'll tell me, oh, I'm overreacting, right? And Absolutely. But I, I find that as a person of color, as women, we are sometimes um, told to subdue our reactions or, or mm -hmm. our reactions are not validated because our environment, like you said, does not validate our experience. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Excellent point. And when that's the case, sometimes we, if there's things that we can do at an individual level, like behavioral changes, like advocating for ourselves, we can do that. Um, and quite often we need policy changes. Mm -hmm. um, so if there are issues that I'm sure we're going to get into a little later, um, that no, they are real things. Um, we, they wouldn't be considered cognitive distortions or maladaptive beliefs. Um, and that's part of what cognitive behavioral therapy would do is kind of determine if something is a cognitive distortion or uh, some situation that requires some behavioral response. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your most recent research, because you focus on cultural trauma and Black men. What has been discovered so far about how trauma impacts people's lives? Because like we've discussed just now, trauma is an external thing that happens that impacts our core beliefs and our assumptions and our automatic thoughts. 
So what do we know so far about that? Well, we've um, the, the research that I'm conducting now on cultural trauma in Black men was funded by the Indiana University uh, Racial Justice Fund. And it is proceeding in several stages. The first stage is a qualitative uh, phase, and that's where we interview 20 Black men in individual interviews and in focus groups, and we ask them a series of questions about um, their thoughts and beliefs and emotional reactions to cultural trauma, racial injustice, and a lot of the um, things that are going on in society now. What we saw was that part of the emotional reaction was a, a fear of losing their lives due to racial injustice. Um, and we also found that not only did Black men have legitimate fears for losing their own lives by police brutality, their families also feared for, for them uh, losing their lives from uh, police brutality. The Black men that we've interviewed, many of them also articulated a fear for, for, their, for their family members as well. So just to kind of summarize, part of what we saw in the emotional reaction is that Black men fear for their own lives regarding police brutality and racial injustice, and the family members of Black men fear for the Black men's lives, and the Black men themselves fear for the lives, for example, of their children. If I could, I want to discuss a little bit about the difference between fear and anxiety. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Take a moment to share a screenshot with me on Instagram at the hyphenated nation and you will be featured in our stories. Fear is a fear occurs when you get like uh, cognitive, behavioral, emotional, and physiological responses to some to some actual threat that's present. And if the actual threat is present, all those reactions uh, create changes that would help you to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have those cognitive, emotional, behavioral, and physiological responses, and there's no true danger, then that would just be anxiety, which is, you know, going to just worsen your life and and not keep you safe in any way. Um, Based on what the men described in our qualitative study, it appeared to be fear rather than anxiety. Um, So the context in which they provided uh, their responses to our questions, um, that they had fear for themselves, uh, their family members, and their their family members also had fear from them. Um, So that that was part of the the emotional reaction. Um, Another, other common emotional reactions we had were distrust of of the, uh, like the criminal justice system. Um, Many men in our interview spoke about hopelessness. This this goes less, I guess it is hopelessness. And that hopelessness, that emotion of a hopelessness was attached to a belief or thoughts about the American justice system that it will never change. Other thoughts about the American justice system was an acknowledged discrepancy among Black men of the difference between what America promised and what it actually delivered to Black men and other Black Americans. Um, they also believe that there were no consequences for police. 
Yeah, that is so interesting. I liked how you took the time to distinguish the difference between fear and anxiety. And fear is almost validating like this person's experience, um, his or her reaction to the experience is due to external factor. Whereas anxiety seems like, like you mentioned, there is no real threat. It's more so the person automatic thoughts or core beliefs impacting those reactions that they have. And it's really powerful that you name that difference because I, I I would imagine that impacts what CBT treatment looks like for these folks. Exactly. And uh, you make a very good point. And I think that when clinicians, whether they be CBT clinicians, when they see uh, clients that are Black and they, they start to express some of these fears, I think validation goes a very long way. And sometimes as cognitive behavioral clinicians, we want to jump right into the cognitive model and right into, uh, you know, uh, evaluating cognitive, what we perceive to be cognitive distortions. But I think we need to spend some time really validating the experience and, and building up on the, the therapeutic rapport, which is, you know, one of the principles of CBT. And with therapeutic report, I think we spoke a little bit about this in our um, conversations prior. If a clinician is, you know, obviously new to this relationship and so is the client, what are some things that that should be considered when we are looking to address cultural trauma through cognitive behavior therapy, especially if the person who is the helper does not identify as being black male? One thing to consider is that, um, First, I think you have to consider who you are as a clinician. Um, what 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 beliefs do you bring do you bring to that to that therapeutic relationship, and how that may help or hurt the client? It's also okay to to ask questions. You know, to be transparent. Yeah. So a lot of the methods that Carl Rogers identified uh, to strengthen the therapeutic rapport, like accurate empathy. Uh, open-ended questions, unconditional positive regard, validation, things like that will go a long way. Um, and I would state that regardless of, of whether CBT is being used or not, it's that strong therapeutic rapport and those methods for achieving it that are integral and you know essential for their therapy to be successful. I have a thought about you know, in treatment and CBT, um, what do you what are you are hoping to see in the future of CBT um, in treating black men? Okay, um, one thing, and this is kind of related to to the previous question, is that I think we, we definitely want to see a specific attention being paid to the the therapeutic relationship. Um, and one really good way. To to that is as a cognitive behavioral therapist, when you do your case conceptualization, get the client's feedback, get the black man or woman's feedback for, for those issues. Ask them, is it relevant? Is there anything that, that, that you would like me to change? This is what Beck recommends in her, in her classic text. It also embodies a collaborative rather than a hierarchical relationship. Mm -hmm. And I know, at least with African Americans, quite often in America, we've we've been harmed by a lot of systems and and uh, hierarchical relationships. So, 
that that could be a good contrast. And I think that's exactly what we want to see moving forward. Uh, you know, some people still argue that it's actually the common factors, like, you know, factors associated with the therapeutic rapport that are the active ingredients for change, not necessarily the CBT components. Um, so there's 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 a debate on, on that issue right now. So if, if, yeah. if that's a question, that, that's something that we're still figuring out. Is it actual, actually the CBT interventions or is it the, the therapeutic rapport factors that are common amongst all evidence-based interventions that, that account for the effectiveness in CBT? Um, yeah. And let me know, did I, did I? I think you brought some really important points. And mm -hmm. um, I think in practice, right, we see evidence of what you just shared in terms of, you know, the therapeutic report sometimes may be more important than the actual model um, or curriculum or modules, because I, I, for example, have seen the difference where maybe the, the client isn't just a good match for the clinician and vice versa. And that's totally okay. Something I will share is that you talked about asking questions and being curious as a therapist and as a helper. And I think sometimes we um, apply assumptions to our clients. And I think we need to reevaluate our own biases every so often, if not every time we see the client. Um, because it's important. And I think clients can also feel when we are bringing in our own biases into the session and they can feel that. And so I think that contributes to when there is not a good fit because, you know, mm -hmm. one party stops asking questions about the, the situation, about the person, about what's helpful. Mm -hmm. I had a client today I was talking to and I was helping her set up um, for therapy and and she identified as a black woman. And I asked her, so do you have any specific requirements that you would like to request for? And she asked me, like, I can request for, I can request for a black therapist. Like she asked me that as if it's not something that's possible. And I'd said, mm -hmm. well, of course you have the right to request for what you want and what you desire. We will mm -hmm. obviously try to match your request as best we can, right? So I'm sure to explain that to her. And it, I think it baffles me that poor people don't feel like they, they have the right to ask for the right type of therapy mm -hmm. um, or the right type of fit rather that they think would be important, whether it be the, um, you know, having a male identified therapist or a female identified therapist, or maybe a person of color who share the same cultural background. And I think we do have that choice, you know, um, and I think it's important we give that voice back to our clients instead of assigning them to whoever is available. I, I agree. I, I think a lot, a lot of that later outcomes could actually be how the person is initially engaged in treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think particularly with African-Americans um, and I, I would imagine to a greater or lesser extent in other countries as well, if there are systemic and structural issues, that initial engagement could determine a lot. Like if they can't, if they come back, even after you see them the first session or extent to which they stay, depending on how things move after they're initially engaged in a particular way. I think what you shared is so important in our work as clinicians, but also for people, whoever is listening to this podcast, if they have, you know, if they are looking for services, if they have people in their lives who are looking for the right support, know that the focus hopefully now and into the future is to look at how we use treatments that 
have been successful and doing studies that's very specific to black men, black women, groups of um, people who identify as people of color. And I think those research hopefully will translate into people being able to identify and recognize the benefits of these therapy maybe was not there before. So I, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you haven't already, please take a moment to leave a review and a rating. If you're a fan of the show and want to get involved, check out the Google form document in the show notes. See you next time.